Hello and welcome to the first bit of coverage of uh, this year's Darwin Festival by us at the Shrewsbury Biscuit Podcast. This is day one. We're going to try and cover some at least one thing for every single day of the Darwin Festival, at least with the vlog that I'm going to be making, which is going to be really cool. But this is really extraordinary. You're going to get to hear a great lecture called Charles Darwin, The Making of a Marvellous Mind by John King. Me and John have met a couple of times. We always have really great conversations about this topic of Darwin. He's so passionate about it, which is why I really think we're quite privileged to be able to share this on the Shrewsbury Biscuit for you. This was recorded at the Unitarian Church in Shrewsbury and I want to thank those guys for giving me so much hospitality, letting me have the run of the place, set up microphones, etc. It's really nice working with you guys again. So I'm going to pass you over to the amazing John King. Um, of course, it's a bit echoey. There may be some slides that he shows that you won't get the full visualisation from. But nonetheless, this is a great lecture, which I really, really enjoyed. And it's all about uh, this building the perfect picture of how Charles Darwin came to be. After this, uh, we do uh, do have a quick chat with John. Um, so you have that to look forward to after the lecture too. So I'll see you on the other side of that with John. Enjoy. still have this here as an oasis of calm in an otherwise crazy world. There is a retiring collection and I thank you in advance for your generosity for that. Okay, so let's splash back 20 years. 20 years ago, um, I was a presenter on BBC Radio Shropshire and one of my guests was a gentleman called Henry Quinn. Henry was a well-known local character. He was a, uh, the manager of a local hostelry, but he was also a keen amateur historian. And Henry asked the question, why doesn't Shrewsbury make more of Charles Darwin? This is the town where he was born. Um, surely we should be celebrating that to, to a greater extent. And I, I honestly couldn't answer the question. I didn't know why Shrewsbury didn't make more of Charles Darwin. Um, shortly thereafter, I thought, well, what's the quickest thing we could do? We could, well, I don't know, start a festival, maybe? So I asked somebody from the Wildlife Trust, somebody from the Town Centre Management Partnership, somebody from Shrewsbury School, and the Arts Officer from the Council, and they said, well, you guys put events on. Why don't you each do an event in the birthday week next February? Find me a couple hundred quid, we'll print some leaflets, let's crack on. So we did, and here we are 20 years later. But shortly afterwards, I was asked by the Town Centre Management Partnership to explore what was Shrewsbury's claim to Charles Darwin. All of his great work, as we know, was written at Down House in Kent, where he settled for the second half of his life, where he set up home with his wife and, and uh, grew a family. It's where all his experimentation took place. It's where all his correspondence took place with naturalists around the world. It's where he gathered together all the information he needed to, to write his great works. What's Shrewsbury's part in that story? So I started to look into it. And the first thing that I discovered, because I knew nothing of Charles Darwin at the time, uh, was that he didn't leave Shrewsbury until he was nearly 30. Now it occurs to me that you can't get to the age of 30 without a few things having an influence on you. We are all, to some extent or other, the sum total of the experiences that we have, good or bad, whether we react against them or we welcome them, whatever they might be, we are a consequence of our experiences, particularly in our formative years. And I suppose that's where, that's where this comes in, really. This is a, a quote 
from The Rainbow by William Wordsworth. And we know that Charles Darwin uh, liked Wordsworth's work. But yeah, the child is the father of the man. We are the sum total of our experiences. This is what makes us who we are. Now, if Darwin is born in Shrewsbury, and he doesn't leave until his late 20s, what influenced him? Did he arrive fully-fledged, the ideal candidate for naturalist on the voyage of the Beagle? No, he did not. No, he did not. How did it all come together? And I suppose this story really, it's about perspective. If you have perspective, you can see so much more. And Darwin is born into a time, and actually on reflection was still in a time where people still don't have perspective, but, but he had it. And how did he gain it? How did he gain that perspective? So each year uh, at noon on the 12th of February, we gather in the Morris Hall courtyard, just down the road from where we are now. And we gather by this stone. This is the Bell Stone. Um, it may have been a, a parish boundary at some time, but it's now been put on a little bit of a plinth here. And what was known in Darwin's childhood was that this this rock wasn't from round these here parts. This is what in geological terms is known as an erratic boulder. This has traveled some distance. By heaven it's traveled some distance. It's traveled from probably North Cumbria or the Scottish borders. Now in Darwin's childhood, they knew enough to know that it wasn't from round here, but they hadn't the vaguest notion how it got here. In fact, Mr. Cotton, who was a keen amateur naturalist, said to Charles Darwin when he was a boy, the world will come to an end before we learn how this stone came to rest here. And for someone with such a young inquiring mind as Charles Darwin, I can think of that only as a challenge. The world will come to an end before we learn how this stone came to rest here. And that's why we have the birthday toast at the Bellstone every year. So many influences though in those 30 years or those 28 years or so, and what I've been doing over the years is, is trying to sort of distill it down, really. Trying to focus on two, possibly three key influences, three pillars, if you will, that help turn a young inquiring mind into the ideal, ideal candidate for naturalist on the voyage of the Beagle. And those three pillars we'll explore this evening, as well as looking at his later life and, and how his ideas formulated finally when he came up with his, with his, with his great, great idea. Shropshire is a remarkable county. We have 10 of the 12 geological periods in the landscape of Shropshire. Now, that, that, that is quite exceptional. Uh, it's certainly exceptional in Europe, if not in the world. For a place the size of Shropshire, 10 of the 12 geological periods are in the landscape. This landscape tells the story of the age of the Earth. Now, geology was a young science when Charles was a young man, where they were beginning to grasp that, to begin to understand that story and how it all came about. Parts of the landscape of Shropshire have travelled from 60 degrees south of the equator. As a consequence of the movement of tectonic plates, which wasn't understood in Darwin's day, but we understand now, this landmass has moved that great distance, and as it's made that journey, it's gathered the evidence of the ages as it goes. Wenlock Edge, limestone, riddled with tiny marine fossils from coral reefs, from warm oceans, sandstone from deserts, 
evidence of volcanic activity, certainly very close to the reek in here, which isn't an extinct volcano, by the way. I took this photo, all the photographs this evening I took myself, by the way, but I took this photograph from the Arca, which is the little sister of the reek in. And just a few meters down from where I was standing when I took this photograph is a disused, is an abandoned quarry. And in that quarry is an incredible fossil. It's not a trilobite, it's not an ammonite, it's, it's not a dinosaur. It's, it's an other kind of fossil altogether. This is a photograph that I took on the beach at Abu Dhabi. And that is part of the escarpment on the Arkel next to the Rigin, a fossilized seabed. What an incredible county. What an incredible county this is. And this is the county where Charles Darwin was born. Geology was the first science that really captured his imagination. Uh, he, he flitted and, 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 and jumped from one interest to another, beetles and bugs and what have you, but it was really the science of geology when he got a little bit older in his, in his sort of mid-teens that he really engaged with. And, of course, his great idea, the origin of species, the development of all the range and the fecundity of life on Earth as a consequence of tiny, minute, incremental changes over millions of generations is complete and utter nonsense if the Earth isn't as old as we now understand it to be. With time, all things are possible. So as a consequence of that, the geology of Shropshire is our first pillar. So is it nature or is it nurture? Uh, it's a time-old debate. Uh, Darwin said, I, or wrote, I was born a naturalist. So he believed he sprung fully formed and that's what he was and that's what he was going to be. If you listen to or read the, the writings of the sociologist Bourdieu, he talks of social capital, of cultural capital, of the things that we are imbued with from the moment of our birth. Uh, Bourdieu argues that someone who has uh, attentive parents, a, a rich social and cultural life and all of those experiences has a greater advantage to someone who, who hasn't got those. And Darwin's born into a family that's comfortably well off, they're cultured, um, he, you know, he's encouraged to read, music is all around him, he has all of these experiences. But is there, is there something else? Is there something in the lineage? So let's go back a couple of generations to his grandfather on his father's side. This is Erasmus Darwin. What a character. Um, a physician, a philosopher, a poet, an inventor, and the founding father of the Lunar Men. A remarkable society of gentlemen, each of them polymaths, interested in sciences, interested in experimentation, very often because it improved their, their, their commerce and their industries. Uh, Erasmus Darwin, he was a bane, uh, <laughs> a, a real pain in the neck for the, 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 the elders at Litchfield Cathedral. You can see the two towers at the back here. Uh, he, he used to drive around in a carriage with a, with a fossil on the side of the carriage and uh, <laughs> they didn't take too kindly to that. But he, he, he was in good company. He was in good company because here is Josiah Wedgwood the father of the Wedgwood dynasty and Charles Darwin's grandfather on his mother's side. Uh, a chemist, a potter, uh, an entrepreneur. We have a lot to thank uh, Josiah Wedgwood for. Buy one, get one free. 
That's a Josiah Wedgwood idea. <laughs> Celebrity endorsement. That's a Wedgwood idea. They were remarkable men, and they were passionate about discovery and expanding the horizons of human understanding. They were called the Lunar Men because they met here. This is Soho House in Handsworth, the home of Matthew Bolton. Uh, There's no great mystical reason why they were called the Lunar Men. They met on the full moon, so they could find their way back home on horseback. Um, Bolton it was who teamed up with uh, with James Watt, the Scottish engineer. They cornered the market in steam engines that were pumping out the floodwaters from the mines in Cornwall. These were incredible, incredible men. Uh, Here's Shropshire's lunar man, William Withering, from Wellington, where I've travelled from this evening. Uh, He was the the gentleman who heard about a, a folk remedy using foxglove, which is a pretty dangerous thing to mess about with. Uh, and in the worst case scenario, it would kill you. Uh, but digitalis is what Withering created from, uh, or distilled from foxgloves and uh, became uh, uh, a really useful medicine in, in the treatment of heart complaints. And then this gentleman, what a character, Joseph Priestley as well. So Joseph Priestley, like these other men, was a nonconformist. These were uh, Unitarians, they were, you, you, the, the Quakers were of a, of, of a similar in, inclination. You need to understand that if you were a nonconformist at this time, there were parts of society that you were barred from. You couldn't attend Oxford or Cambridge, for instance, you couldn't be an MP. There were lots of things you couldn't do if you were a nonconformist. Now, that normally would be considered a hindrance, but in the, the case of these people, and particularly Joseph Priestley, it was a benefit. He couldn't go to Oxford or Cambridge, not a problem. They've been teaching the same thing for generations. I want to learn new things. He set up a school to teach young people new things, experimentation, questioning, boys and girls. Joseph Priestley founded the first Unitarian church in London. Joseph Priestley discovered oxygen and carbonated drinks are a consequence of Joseph Priestley's uh, ingenuity. Incredible people. Um, but they, were, they, were, they weren't shackled by what others might have seen as limitations. They used it to their advantage because they were free. They were free to question. So this is the house that Robert Darwin built for the Darwin family. They moved to Shrewsbury. Uh, they, they rented a house on the Crescent uh, at the end of Town Walls. Uh, and then they built this house, and this is the house where Darwin was born on the 12th of February 1809. Lovely place, I was there this afternoon. Um, it's, it's a happy home, it's a happy place to be. Uh, it's, it's a place of adventure for Darwin. It's very close to open countryside, and he would go out and explore on his own, capturing bugs and beetles. There's a lovely story of him, and he tells us in his autobiography, he's, he's, he's walking through the... He's walking through the fields and he's forgotten to take his you know, jar or his net or, or whatever it is he would have taken when he's doing his natural history uh, explorations. And he sees this beetle that really attracts his attention. He's not seen one of these before. I'll, I'll very gently pick this up and look after it. And he keeps walking and then he sees another one. There's, oh, I'll, I'll take that one. And he keeps walking and he sees another one. So to pick that one up, he thinks it's a really good idea to put this one in his mouth, it, 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 it exudes some hideous acrid liquid and he gets to spit it out and he misses it, but he was just completely engrossed in the natural world, that's where he was at, 
this young child completely bedazzled by what he was seeing around him and constantly asking why. Why do things look the way they look? Why are they that way? He's baptised at St Chad's Church. St Chad's Church, Church of England, he's in a Unitarian family. Why? Well, we've already mentioned that there were limitations in later life if you were a non-conformist and if the law stayed the way it stayed when he was born. That's a possibility. And as we'll learn later on, yes, Darwin did go to, to one of the uh, to two established universities. But equally, Robert Darwin was a well-respected man in his community. Uh, the St. Chad's Church is the civic church, so perhaps it just seemed sensible that a man of his stature would have his, his son baptised there. We don't really know, but this is a view taken at the back of the mount. Uh, that This is still here. All of this is still here. The trees have grown a bit, but if you cut them down, that's the view you'd see today. It hasn't changed. It's quite remarkable. It, the land drops precipitously down to the River Severn, which snakes around the back of the house. Uh, there's a zigzag, long zigzag path. I'll show you a picture in a moment of, of what, how the gardens worked. And there was a tradition of having what they called these thinking paths. This is somewhere to, to reflect, to gather your thoughts. It's something that Darwin was uh, determined to have when he moved down to Downhouse in Kent. But here are the gardens, and they are quite extensive. Now today, if you were to cut this in half, top to bottom, everything on the right-hand side here, let me see if my WYSIWYG works. Yay! Oh. Um, so if we cut it down in half here, everything here is now a close called Darwin Gardens. When the house was eventually sold and all the lots, plots, it was divided up. So that's not there anymore. But you can see the house. Uh, you can see the extensive gardens. Here's the, here's the thinking path that the snakes all the way down there. And what the Darwin family did, what his, his father and his mother did, is they kept Darwin, they kept garden diaries. So they were keeping a, a record of everything that they grew in the garden, how it, how it fared, and does it fare better in shade or in full sunlight. Very detailed garden diaries kept year after year after year. And of course what this is, is teaching a very small Charles Darwin to observe and record which every scientist needs to learn. It's the bedrock of science. Observe and record. And he was being taught this from a very, very early age. So as a consequence of that, the garden diaries are the second of our three pillars. First being the geology of Shropshire. So education. Well, um, he was taught to begin with by his elder sister Caroline, who, uh, if you read Darwin's writings, he considered to be a little bit bossy. Um, on one occasion, he wrote that if he was walking through the house and he knew he was going to go into a room that Caroline was already in, he was thinking, oh, what's she going to blame me for now? Uh, eventually, and shortly thereafter, he goes here. This is 13 Claremont. Can I just say at this point, all these photographs are taken in Shrewsbury, but now, this is the town that Darwin knew. And it still looks the same, it's remarkable. But this is 13 Claremont, and it was the home of the Reverend Case. The Reverend George Case, who was the vicar, the minister here in this church. He was the Unitarian minister in Shrewsbury at the time, and he was Darwin's first formal teacher. Um, Darwin's born in 1809, interesting times in Europe. You know, uh, Battle of Trafalgar, 1805, Battle of Waterloo, 1815, he's right smack in the middle of some tumultuous times in, in, in Europe. You know, the threat of invasion from Napoleon 
was a real fear. It's very much like the kind of, what they describe as the phony war, the first few months of the Second World War, when we were waiting for Hitler to come. It was a similar kind of vibe at that time in this country, the fear that, 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 that Napoleon was going to come. He doesn't remember, Darwin doesn't remember much about his education. He does remember one particular incident. And I suppose if you, if you think about battle then, you know, in, in that time, he didn't just dress for dinner, he dressed for battle. Bright red tunics, gold braid, feathers in the hats, pretty dramatic stuff. I mean, they didn't know the first thing about camouflage, but anyway, while he was, while he was here at day school, he was looking out the back window, and the back of, if you look out the back of this building here, you see the churchyard at St. Chad's, and it was the burial of a dragoon officer, a mounted officer, and as was the, the tradition, his riderless horse was led to the graveside with the, with the dragoon officer's boots backwards in the stirrups. It's a tradition that the cavalrymen continue for, for many, many times after that. Um, after the Reverend Casey's uh, school, he goes here. This is Shrewsbury Library. It was Shrewsbury School. Um, Samuel Butler, Dr. Samuel Butler was the headmaster at the time. And um, it wasn't a really nice experience. If you know Shrewsbury, you'll know that the library really isn't that far from the mount. But Darwin boarded here. So he, he, was, he was boarding in a house that was like... 15 minutes walk from his own home. And as a consequence, he, you know, he enjoyed the school life, but basically he enjoyed the same deprivations that the other pupils did. Next door to here is the house that, that Samuel Butler lived in, and above the archway are, the, are his initials, SB, you know, which the boys said actually stood for stale bread or stinking beef. Didn't stand for Samuel Butler. So he, he didn't really enjoy his time there. Um, I mean, if you use your imagination a bit, you can imagine Charles let's say he's up in this window here, sitting in the window seat, reading the historic plays of Shakespeare. He said he used to do that. But he didn't really enjoy much else because to be honest with you, this was a formal education and he's still a young boy. Although he's still a young boy, he's, he's passionate about learning more about the real world, the natural world, and he's not being taught that here. Uh, and then this wonderful building here. Uh, and this is the church that Charles Darwin attended with his mother, Susanna, until she sadly died when he was eight years old. Now, I talked about Priestley and the other lunar men and their, 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 their passion in, in learning more and in pushing back the boundaries of understanding, in, in finding wisdom wherever they could find wisdom. As you leave here this evening, have a look on the left-hand side when you go out there. There is a plaque. And this is what's on the plaque. Uh, and the, the most important part of this is, for me, the Unitarian path is a liberal religious movement rooted in the Judeo-Christian traditions, but open to insights from world faiths, reason, and science. So Darwin isn't just being encouraged to look outside the box. He's being encouraged to look outside the book. And that's really, really important. It's okay to ask questions. If something mystifies you, explore it. You might not find the answer, but what a journey you'll go on. That's the difference. So for me, that is our third pillar. First is the geology of Shropshire, second is the family diaries, and the third is the Unitarian path combination of those, amongst other things, but to distill it down to three 
really important uh, influences, I believe that those are the three pillars that helped transform Charles Darwin from a young inquiring mind to the ideal candidate for mattress on the voyage of the Beagle. So what next? Well, get a job, young man. He's born into comfortable wealth, but his father's not going to let him be idle. Um, his grandfather was a physician, his father is a physician, his eldest brother Raz is at Edinburgh University, so to Edinburgh, young man, to study medicine, um, which he, 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 bless his heart, he, he tried his best, but he attended two operations on small children, pre-anesthesia, and that was it for Charles. Um, he, he got through his studies, but what he did do uh, is he sought out the people that were talking about the things that really interested him. This is Professor Robert Grant. Robert Grant said to Darwin, he said, if you're serious about natural history, find an area that's not yet greatly explored and make it your own. He's in Edinburgh, it's on the 4th or 5th. He's got the opportunity to study marine zoology in the tidal pools, the, 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 the barnacles that live in these sort of hinterlands between high tide and low tide. So he starts to explore those, and indeed carried on uh, researching those for, for many, many years afterwards. Um, while he's at Edinburgh, he meets this gentleman, this is John Edmundstone, uh, and John uh, taught Charles Darwin taxidermy, which was going to be really, really useful, obviously later on, although Darwin was never, wasn't to know this at the time, but was going to be proved really useful when he went on the voyage of the Beagle. Charles was a young man, like any young man, he had his interests. His father's clientele were the children of the idle rich who lived in the great houses around, the, around this town. So he fell in with the country set. He loved shooting for game. He was a really good shot, passionate about it. He even writes that on one occasion, he used to keep his boots right beside the bed so that as he stepped out of bed first thing in the morning, he could put his feet straight into his boots, pick up his gun and go off shooting. Incredible, obsessed with country sports. He loved it more than, more than, almost more than studying natural history. He was passionate about it. Spent far too much time doing it, to be perfectly honest with you. But hey, he's a young guy, you know, what do you, what do, you do? He's a student, a student type. Um, this is a sketch of Mayor Hall. It's to the north of Shrewsbury, it's just over the Staffordshire border, and it's the home of Josiah Wedgwood II, the son of uh, Josiah Wedgwood. And in the country grounds here, this is where Darwin, amongst other stately homes or, or, or posh, posh estates, would spend many, many happy days uh, fishing and shooting and, and just having a, a right old time. Um, his father, quite frankly, was despairing at this point. This is clearly, you know, things aren't going brilliantly at Edinburgh. Um, he, he, he said of Charles, you, that he cares for nothing but shooting dogs and rat catching. And he said, you'll be a disgrace to yourself and all this family. So Robert and Charles weren't getting on particularly well at this time in Darwin's life. But Darwin, he was having a great time. <laughs> so, you know, this is, there, there's Mayor Hall. That's a better photograph, that's one I took. And this is um, St. Peter's Church. In fact, this is the church where Darwin later married his first cousin, the daughter of Josiah Wedgwood I. So, uh, he comes back from Edinburgh and carries on with his hunting and fishing and shooting and having a right old time. And his father says, no, 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 no. Okay, if you're not going to be a doctor, let's find something else for you to do. How about the clergy? Charles, the Reverend Charles Darwin. It's got a ring to it, hasn't it? So he's sent to Cambridge 
to study for the clergy, and he, he does all his studies. He, he, he does, you know, the same at Edinburgh. He, he goes through the motions, but he's seeking out again like-minded people that will that will help him, that will that will mentor him. Uh, this is John Stevens Henslow, uh, and. Uh, Darwin spent so much time in this man's company, he became known as the man who walks with Henslow. But Henslow saw something in Charles Darwin. He saw something in this boy. He was bright, he was attentive, he wanted to learn, he was curious. Now this isn't the young Charles Darwin that Robert, his father, knew. But it's all about perspective, isn't it, as I said earlier on. So while he's uh, at university at Cambridge and going through the, through the motions there, he's thinking, I, I want to go on an adventure. I'd like, an adve- I'd like to go and do a bit of exploring. So he gets, in his mind, in, he gets it in his own mind that he, he, he'd like to get hold of a, a, a ship and go to Tenerife uh, and study the flora and fauna of Tenerife. So this, this, is, this is Darwin's sort of long-term game plan. What his father thought of this, heaven only knows. Uh, but all the time he's doing that, he's, again, he's going, uh, he's meeting with these great minds at Cambridge University. This is Adam Sedgwick, the great geologist. Uh, Sedgwick took Darwin on some of his great sorties. To the, to the left here is an image of Cum Idwell, which is in the, the Snowdonian National Park. Um, it's a remarkable, I mean, it looks for all the world like, a, like the crater of a volcano. Now Sedgwick, who knew a thing or two about geology, took Darwin there, and they couldn't for the life of them work out what they were looking at, other than it was a remarkable feature in the landscape. A few years later, when Darwin comes back from the voyage of the Beagle and the various things that he'd seen, and and volcanoes and and all all sorts of other things that he'd seen, remarkable geological landscapes, he went back to Comidwell, and it just, the light went on. The light went on, and he imagined that bowl full of ice, a glacial ice. And he said, a house burnt down by fire could not have told the story more clearly of how it came to be. So he saw it once with Sedgwick, and they didn't get it. But after the voyage of the Beagle, perspective, he understood how it came to be. So while he's on his trip with Sedgwick, something else is happening on the other side of the world that Darwin could have known nothing about at all. This is a ship called HMS Beagle. And it's off the coast of Tierra del Fuego here, actually. Tierra del Fuego, if you don't know, is the southern, southeast, southeasterly tip of South America. It's a godforsaken place, um, by all accounts. Storms lashing, three oceans meet at the southern tip of of, uh, of South America, as you know, the Pacific, the Atlantic, and the, and the Southern Ocean, they all meet there, so it's a, a real cauldron. But there was a necessity, a need to, to understand the landscape more, to map it well, and it was being mapped at the time by this chap, and this is Captain Robert Fitzroy, who was the captain of HMS Beagle. And while he's bobbing up and down in these awful oceans and the mist keeps rolling in and he can't take his measurements, He's dreaming of a real adventure. He would like to travel. He'd like to travel around the world, but he wants this to be more than just a jolly. He wants it to have some merit of some kind. It's his idea to have perhaps um, a scientific officer. How about that? Let's have a scientific officer, a, a naturalist that will come on this journey and give it some, some, some merit, some, some gravitas, if you will. 
hasn't, hasn't got a clue who to, to ask for this. So he asks his friend in the Admiralty, Francis Beaufort. Beaufort is the scale that we measure wind speed by. It's named after Francis himself. Francis had some connections. He knew a mathematician at Cambridge called George Peacock. And George Peacock uh, knew Henslow. So he speaks to Henslow and said, like, we need to find, this is the opportunity of a lifetime, we need to find a naturalist to go on a voyage with the Beagle. And Henslow knew exactly who he wanted to go on this trip. So the top of his list was the Reverend Leonard Jennings of Swatham Bulbeck. And, you know, of course we all remember him, don't we? <laughs> uh, uh, the Reverend Jennings, uh, though, perhaps luckily, considered that he wasn't really in a position to, to, to leave his flock and, and jolly off around the world, so he passed on it. So Fitzroy says to Henslow, well, you go, you, you're, you, you're, you're the guy, you go. And Henslow says, well, I can't, I can't go, you know, I've got lectures to do. Well, who then? And Henslow said, well, Funny you should ask that, because there's a young man who's been following me around, and uh, he's quite right. Um, he's got a lot to learn, but I think he might be the person for the job. So, Charles Darwin returns from his geological sortie with Sedgwick. Uh, here is Robert Darwin, his father. And there's a letter waiting for him, and the letter is the invitation to go on the voyage of the Beagle. And Robert's thinking, and Charles rather is thinking, well, this is it. This is, this is the opportunity of a lifetime. This is, never mind Tenerife. This is, this is going around the world. This is just what I want to do. Rushes in to, to his father, Robert, and shows him the letter. And Robert reads the letter, and there's this opportunity. Naturalist on the voyage of the Beagle. An admiralty ship, travel around the world. And Robert does, perhaps, or says what any father in that circumstance would say. You can't go. What are you on now, Charles? Your second university? You know, this is, this, this is a useless undertaking. A useless undertaking, Robert Darwin said, of this chance on the voyage of the Beagle. Do you know, I made that point earlier on about the Charles Darwin that Henslow saw and the Charles Darwin that his father saw. It's the same Charles Darwin but they're seeing from a different perspective. Robert says you can't go, but there's one caveat, one caveat. If you can find someone whose opinion I trust, who can persuade me otherwise, I might, I might change my mind. And Charles knows exactly who to reach out to, and that's Josiah Edward II, his uncle Joss, up at Mayor Hall. Jumps on his horse, gallops north into Staffordshire, uh, breathlessly arrives and says to his Uncle Joss, look, I'm in a bit of a pickle here and I need your help. Joss returns to Shrewsbury with Charles. They sit down with Robert. And Joss manages to persuade Robert that maybe, do you know what, just maybe this might be the making of your son. Not a useless undertaking, but it could be the making of him. You really ought to reconsider. Um, Charles chirrups up and says, well, you know, there, there's, there's no salary, so I'd be reliant on an allowance from you. He said, but luckily I'll be at sea most of the time, so I'd have to be juiced clever to spend it all. And Robert Darwin says, without hardly missing a beat, yes, but everyone says, you are very clever, Charles. 
<laughs> he changes his mind, but Charles has already said no, and his chance of a lifetime is slipping away. So he races across town to the Lion Hotel, the famous coaching inn, jumps on a coach and heads south to claim his place in history. So many of the places you've seen here are still here now. These are the places that Charles Darwin knew. This is his town. And so, off he goes on the voyage of the Beagle. A great adventure. The things that he sees, my word, the places that he goes to, volcanic eruptions, slave plantations in Brazil, the Galapagos Islands, um, the great tortoise, the finches that he sees. There's no evidence to suggest that he had a Damascene moment on, on the Galapagos, but he stored all that information away. His mind, when he came back from the Voyage of the Beagle, was full of questions that, by heaven, he was going to find a way to answer them. And that was the most important thing, really. And after his great journey, he returns to Shrewsbury. He's now in his late 20s, but he can't stay for long, sadly. All his collections have been sent back. Interestingly enough, and this, this is probably what came as a, a real shock to, to Robert Darwin, while Darwin was on the Voyage of the Beagle, sending back these specimens everywhere he went, I mean, the, the, the scientific community in Cambridge particularly was bowled over by what they were seeing. Uh, and Sedgwick travelled to Shrewsbury and knocked on Robert Darwin's door and said to Robert Darwin, your son should take a place amongst the leading scientific men. And Robert was the thought, Charles? <laughs> but, but that's the game changer, you see. So he comes back, he, he moves to London briefly, but he's not happy there. What he wants is a place like this. That's really why he wants to settle and, and, and start a family. And this is what he finds, Downhouse in Kent. And this is where he settled. This is where he did all his great work. This is where he continued his work on barnacles for another decade. Uh, this is where he, he put a stone on the lawn and watched it for 10 years as it got subsumed by worm casts. Just up the road is Roxeter, Roman city, the fourth largest Roman city in England, in Britain, in Roman Britain. Why do we have to dig down to find Roman ruins? Why do we have to dig down to find anything of antiquity? It's because these objects get gradually consumed by worm casts. It's the last book he wrote, the last great work he wrote was on the action of worm casts. Down was more than just a family home, it was his study, it was his laboratory, his children were his willing assistants. It was a happy, happy home. Darwin was plagued by ill health for, for most of his life, but he'd scribbled down the first ideas around his big idea, tied them up with a piece of string with a note saying, in the, end of, in the event of my death, give this to my publisher, stuck it under the stairs and just carried on studying barnacles until... This chap sends him a letter, and this is Alfred Russell Wallace. Alfred Russell Wallace was traveling the Pacific Oceans, visiting all these islands, collecting specimens, natural history specimens, and sending them back to eager collectors in this country. So that's, that's how he made his living, really. And what's the, the similarity is that both of them were visiting island chains. So they were going from island to island and seeing species that looked to all intents and purposes similar, but for whatever reason had subtly changed at the next island that they went to. So Wallace is thinking, well, I need to, I need to run this past somebody. I need someone to get to sense check it. I need a, a critical friend. 
How about that chap who wrote his account of the Voyage of the Beagle? What's his name, Charles Darwin? I'll send it to him, see what he says. So the letter, the letter arrives with this abstract and Darwin opens it and reads it and his heart sinks. All of my originality, he says, all of my originality is gone. What's he gonna do? And can't ignore Wallace, nor would he have wanted to do so. So in 1858, at the Linnaean Society, two papers are read on the origin of species, Alfred Russell Wallace's and Charles Darwin. Neither of them were there, by the way. Charles had just lost a son to a fever just a few days before. And now he must rush into print. He really, really can't wait anymore. So he does, and instead of what was gonna be his great work, three huge tomes that he was going to write, suddenly becomes something as simple as that. Amazing. Slim, readable, an instant bestseller. I mean, it, just, it, it flew off the bookstands, off, off the bookshelves, absolutely flew off there. Now, I, I talked earlier on about the three pillars, the three pillars, the key main influences in Darwin's transformation, shall we say. I don't think that's much of, too much of an exaggeration. Every year when I do the Darwin Walk, we travel around the places that you've seen here, um, but the penultimate stop is here. This is the Darwin Gate at the top of Mardon. And I imagine that these are our three pillars. There's the geology of Shropshire. There's the Garden Diaries. And that's the Unitarian Path. Three disparate influences, not in any way connected, apparently, unless you have perspective. Take a few steps down Mardon and look back, and that happens. Three disparate ideas coming together as a consequence of perspective and somebody seeing things that everybody else has seen, but sees them in a different light, from a different angle, and creates this incredible, incredible, simple idea. So when we drink a toast to Charles Darwin, as we will at 12 noon next Saturday, if you care to join me, you're welcome to do so. And I always end by reading from the conclusion of the origin of species, and this is this is, perhaps this is a, this is a, his grandfather Erasmus's influence. This is poetry for me. I think this is just wonderful. This is this is the closing extract from the origin of species. It is interesting to contemplate an entangled bank, clothed with many plants of many kinds, with birds singing on the bushes, with various insects flitting about and with worms crawling through the damp earth. And to reflect that these elaborately constructed forms, so different from each other and dependent on each other in so complex a manner, have all been produced by laws acting around us. There is grandeur in this view of life. With its several powers having been originally breathed into a few forms or into one, and that whilst this planet has gone cycling on according to the fixed law of gravity, from so simple a beginning, endless forms of most beautiful and most wonderful have been and are being 
evolved. Thank you very much. If you, if you have questions, I'll try and answer them to the best of my knowledge. But yes, sir. was about, uh, in later life, Darwin was, was troubled uh, by illness for, for, for many, many years. He was plagued by illness. His mother, Susanna, uh, was, was poorly for quite a long time, quite a few months before she eventually died. Um, we don't know why Darwin was ill. There is a suggestion that... Um, it might have been a nervous condition. Uh, it might have been that he didn't like visitors coming around unless he knew who they were. There's also another theory that it might have been something that he, that he uh, uh, caught on the voyage of the Beagle, that he was bitten perhaps or, or caught some kind of tropical illness. We, the, the jury's out really, we don't know. I mean, some, some people suggest it was lactose intolerance. And sadly, we won't know. I think that the, the, the miracle is that he was able to do that huge body of work as a, a man who was battling illness, we all imagined. Now, any other questions? Okay. Well, thank you very much indeed for coming. Uh, there's plenty more events happening in the Darwin Festival this week. As I say, I'll be leading the Darwin Toast and the Darwin Walk at 12 noon next Saturday. Um, just a reminder that this evening is in, in aid of this wonderful building and if you are able to contribute in some way there is a retirement collection. Thank you and have a safe journey home. Thank you very much indeed. So I'm with John now just after um, that lecture. After, I mean obviously you mentioned at the beginning of the lecture there that you, you've been doing, you've been having a lot of input with the Darwin Festival for a long time now. When it comes to doing um, lectures and talks like this how much work has to go into it? Or does it naturally just flow? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a, it's a lot of research, to be yeah. honest with you. I mean, this, this, this journey for me started about 20 years ago, yeah. when I knew next to nothing about Charles Darwin, other than he was a old bloke with a long grey beard and he did some science. That's all I knew. Fella, that Darwin, yeah? Yeah, that's all I knew about it. That's all I knew about it. And uh, um, I, I made it my business to find out. I was encouraged to, to research it, because the whole thing about it is, you know, what's, who's, who's Shrewsbury's Charles Darwin? He's not the Darwin of Downhouse in Kent. No. You know, this is the town he's born in, but does it mean anything else other than that? And in the lecture, uh, what I'm trying to illustrate is actually there's, there's a lot of Shrewsbury in Darwin, a lot of Darwin in Shrewsbury. Yeah. Still is. I mean, uh, the last Darwin festival that we could be out and about, I watched, uh, I went and saw Bibbs Cameron's um, lecture at Bear Steps about the Darwin family. 
besides Dark Charles, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that, that is, is, is extensive yeah, yeah. enough, isn't it? Can... Well, his, his, uh, his great nephew was Ray Fawn Williams, the classical music composer. It just goes on and on. Yeah, I mean, there's, some, there's something in the genes, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Um, how do you feel like things are, are faring with the Darwin Festival? Are things progressing? Are they progressing in a way you would like it to? Because obviously you started this thing all these years ago. Do you, think, do you think by now it should have been bigger than what it was? I think it, the, these things require in investment of, of time, they require investment of money, but I think the change is coming. I think the biggest, the biggest change is, the, is the, the, the ownership of the mount. You know, it's in, it's in ostensibly private hands, but there's a genuine opportunity now for, for public engagement and, and access to that building. And that's gonna be a change. And now, so now we connect the offer that we've talked about, that I talked about tonight, of the town with the house. Together, that's a very powerful combination, and I think that's that's where the change is going to come. Well, um, we can talk extensively uh, <laughs> about this, John, but um, I just wanted to get a little bit to put on the end of that lecture, which I will release. Um, hopefully, at some point, we can sit down and have that extensive chat, but I, I understand you're getting your stuff packed away. But thank you very much for tonight. It was really, really insightful. Genuinely, really enjoyed it. And, Good. Uh, My until pleasure. next time, we'll meet again. Cheers. Peace out. Thank you. So there we have that great lecture there by John King. Thank you so much, John, for letting me record your lecture. Thank you again to the Unitarian Church for letting me set up and do my thing. And um, yeah, this is really, really going to be good. A good week of collecting content for you guys all around the world to enjoy what's going on at the Darwin Festival. It's really important that we, we share this knowledge and we all enjoy it together. I want to give you guys the opportunity to check out our website, which is theshrewsburybiscuitpodcast.co.uk. All of our content is playable off our website and it's made for us by our friends at Web Orchard. If you need a website, they'll make a website for you. doesn't matter what you're doing. If you have a business, you use Etsy. If you have an events page, if you have a podcast, a band, whatever it is, they'll make the perfect website for you. I'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening. Peace out. <laughs>